You've scanned the headlines, you've read the articles and liked the posts. Now listen to the experts themselves in the Future of Work podcast, presented by AllWork.Space. Today, we welcome Dave Cairns, telling us about his experience as a digital nomad and now as an office leasing agent. Join us as we dive into CRE and leadership. Stay tuned as he discusses his project with roundtable discussions in the metaverse, called Inspired People, Inspired Places. Dave, welcome to the Future Work podcast. Really happy to have you here today uh, and appreciate uh, you joining us all the way from Prince Edward Island in Canada. Yeah, my pleasure to be here. I'm excited to uh, have a chat about the future of stuff. Well, the future of work is, in fact, affects us all, certainly. And, and you've had an interesting story yourself. It kind of you encapsulate a lot of the elements that we see going on all over. Can you give us a little bit of your background from digital nomad to CBRE office agent to a digitally independent worker living on Prince Edward Island? How did that transaction, uh, a transition occur? And what, how do you think it fits in with the way people are working today? Hmm, yeah, it's a deep question. Um, yeah, so I started out um, leaving college as a professional online poker player. Um, I was fortunate enough to be successful enough at that while I was in college that I didn't really, it didn't necessitate me getting a, a real or conventional job in my, uh, once I graduated. And, and interestingly, when, when I did graduate, I actually had more certainty about what I was doing at that time in my life than, than I've actually ever had since. And I certainly had a lot more certainty than my peers who were very confused and trying to figure out, you know, what type of job they would take, you know, at, a, at an accounting firm or consultancy or big bank or whatever. So it was, it was almost, you know, it was refreshing for me at the time to not have to worry about that because when I look in the rearview mirror, um, I think it really felt like life or death to me in terms of like taking on a traditional job at that time. And so success at poker was almost like, you know, do it at all costs kind of thing. So I was just really fortunate that I was able to be successful at it. And so I then carried on um, after college in 2009 for almost four years uh, competing in, in professional poker at a, at a high level. I was I was ranked as one of the top online poker player, online tournament poker players in the world for a period of time. Um, and I also played a lot of live stops traveling to places like Europe and, and the World Series of Poker in Vegas. Um, yeah, and it was a fun it was a fun lifestyle. Um, I, I ended up quitting the game earlier than I had planned. Uh, in 2011, the Department of Justice in the U.S. indicted the two largest online poker websites for tax evasion, money laundering and a whole whack of charges uh, and consequently made it illegal for the, the U.S. player pool to, to play. So it materially changed the games for the worse. They became smaller and harder. Um, and so I, I looked at that inflection point as maybe a moment to sort of say, OK, this might be my time to, to move on from the game. Um, so I did. Uh, but at first, I really just took a step back. I, I didn't really know what to do with myself. Um, I had money, which was fortunate and unfortunate, uh, fortunate in that I didn't have to worry, but unfortunate in that I didn't really have like a fire under my ass, so to speak, to, to do something else. Um, but eventually, I ended up just sort of deciding, okay, I need to take a little bit of a leap of faith here and do something in the, the professional or corporate arena. Uh, I had friends and family that were all in commercial real estate, and they kind of just encouraged me to, to give it a shot. Um, notably, brokerage, uh, fully commission-based brokerage, they sort of said, look, you know, you're used to losing money more days than you win money. Um, so you probably do okay with commission-based work and you're good at, you know, good at analytical skills and, and good with people. So why don't you give it a shot? And so I did. And, um, 
I spent then, you know, eight and a half years being in the office pretty much every day and uh, selling the office uh, in and out. Um, and that was a great journey. Um, but what I didn't know while it was happening was that I sort of shut the door, locked the key on this digitally nomadic sort of digital first kind of guy. Um, I just didn't really have much use for those skills in that previous phase of my life. But then the pandemic happened and it was an interesting kind of profession to be in when a pandemic occurs, because all of a sudden the hottest thing out there, which was, you know, taking up more office space, you know, office markets in North America had some of the lowest levels of vacancy on record, right. uh, notably in Canada and markets like Toronto. You know, so all of a sudden something that you just couldn't find that everybody wanted, which was office space, became the bottom of the list. And, you know, it, it really felt almost insensitive from my point of view to prospect clients, prospective clients uh, during such a, a difficult health and safety crisis. But on top of that, more selfishly, it felt like the definition of insanity because I, I just felt like who's who's even going to field my call right now? So. What I kind of did is I, I realized that I'd been in this spot before, that I knew how to collaborate and build relationships in an online capacity first. In essence, I, I, pos I possessed being digitally native and I just kind of synthesized all of that for myself in, in the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, in, in realizing that, what I decided to do was go on a journey of, of publicly journaling my thoughts on this whole matter. Um, you know, at first I spent a lot of time talking about the supply demand inefficiencies in the commercial real estate industry that, that just really don't meet the needs of, of modern companies or uh, end users of, of space, which would be employees. Um, I felt that there was a big mismatch there in terms of flexibility of lease terms and, and also, um, you know, the, the quality of service and hospitality and technology that, that most offices don't provide to, to end users of the space. So I spent a lot of time talking about that, but more recently I've really been talking, um, about this sort of like movement towards uh, location and time independence and uh, almost like a, you know, a renaissance moment for parents to kind of like get some of their time back and, and spend more time with their families. I'm, I'm really more trying to lean into the movement now than I am focused on talking about the commercial real estate market or anything like that, even though I still play in it. You, you know, it, it's kind of interesting going back to where you started here a little bit. Um, being a professional gambler is no different than being a VC in, in many respects. And, and, and um, uh, by, by pure coincidence, uh, for a number of years when I was young, my dad was a professional gambler. He was a poker player. Oh, cool. Uh, everything was live then. And, and so I, I ended up spending a lot of time, not a lot of time, but a fair amount of time, memorable trips back and forth uh, between uh, California and Newport, where we lived, and, and Vegas. Uh, where, where he would go and play every month for a, a regular sessions. So I, I get that. And it, it is kind of interesting when you think about it. As a poker player, you you got to play the hand you're dealt. You got to deal with stuff. And you better be decisive. You have to make decisions. And those decisions Im have immediate consequences um, that you feel pain or gain uh, right away. Um, and you don't know what else is going on on the table aside from your instincts and your experience. So in many respects, it's a great preparation for business overall, uh, I think, and for understanding when times change or when something changes that you can't keep playing the same game. 
you have to change your game. And I think that that's probably an important lesson. You may be learned consciously or unconsciously, but that is a great preparation for a lot of people. In fact, I wish everybody that had kids, that those kids got kicked out of college about their sophomore year and became professional gamblers. <laughs> uh, the, the whole world would be quite a different place, um, uh, you know, as a result of that. Um, so I, I get it. And I think that there's a, a, a great background there. It's interesting that you chose commercial real estate, uh, to come to, I think it's a, a, a comfort level. It's a natural thing. And there was a hot market going on. You, you could, could certainly do well in the market. Um, but, uh, when you have as much gray hair or as little hair as I have, uh, you've seen half a dozen cycles in the real estate industry. And you know, that, uh, uh just like poker, there's, you know, you have a hot streak and then a cold streak uh, a lot of times. And, and the, the markets are like that in real estate. And, and the, the way when we look at the future of work, uh, we see those cycles occurring. And uh, what comes out of them is really not just change, but knowledge of change. Um, and so I think there's a, a lot there that we can, can play on. Uh, overall, talk a little bit about the mismatch you saw in commercial real estate coming up, not just the market, but in the way that space was being used and, and what you saw from your clients. So what you saw, what CBRE saw overall, um, and where do you see it going? We're talking about the future of work here, not yesterday, uh, but tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was all really well said. So thanks for kind of bringing that home for me. <laughs> um, yeah, as far as the, the mismatch of supply and demand, you know, it's really interesting to, to reflect because um, there are statistics and data and things that I've learned um, since the, since this pandemic started that didn't even enter my mind as, a, as an office leasing broker prior to the pandemic. So, by example, I had no knowledge of the fact that uh, offices were actually already 50% empty prior to the pandemic, meaning most offices are massively underperforming. Uh, that was something that I just didn't actually need to know, which is kind of crazy when you think about it, because as a real estate broker, you're actually advising companies on how much space they need. And, you know, very, very frequently we would do it off the back of a napkin and, and use kind of rudimentary metrics of sort of roughly 120 to 150 square feet a person is what we would say, you know, an employer might need for, for an office. But in no way did we we take note of how it was actually being utilized. So it's very interesting just to, to sort of like think of that, that pre-pandemic, most markets had very little vacancy, you know, five or less percent vacancy, but that occupancy within those buildings was, was really not doing very well. So when we talk about um, returning to where we were from before the pandemic, we're really actually referring to returning to something that was only 50% effective give or take i mean we, we could definitely debate that um from from the vantage point that no office should really ever be a hundred percent occupied because it, it would maybe necessitate not having enough seats for people although the, the counterpoint to that argument is that much like you know bustling restaurants or things of that nature sometimes it's actually not a bad thing for you know a customer to be turned away because it creates this sort of scarcity that makes them actually want to come back and and we could maybe say that there's benefit to that going forward with the use of an office. Um, but yeah, I, I think in general, I didn't know any of those things. And now what I possess in my head is, is a lot more robust um, 
you know, sort of an, an, an broader way of looking at the problem. Um, Relogix is a company that I, I, I swear by. They're a, a data and analytics company for, for workplaces, and they've put out some really compelling global studies since the pandemic. And what we've basically found is that it's not only uh, badge swipes that have gone massively down, which would sort of be analogous to that castle systems data that a lot of people might be familiar with uh, throughout this pandemic. They've been the ones tracking the return to the office. Um, occupancy has gone down by you know more than 50 percent, but it's the utilization, which is really the time spent within a given environment that's gone down even more. So what that data is ultimately telling me is that the office is kind of shifting from a place of where all work occurs to a place where people drop into for probably various reasons, some of which are heads down reasons, uh, because they maybe don't possess a working environment that's suitable at home to do heads down work, or probably more likely it's for coming together for gatherings, for, for community uh, engagement and, and for collaboration. So I think that that's a really compelling uh, analysis, just realizing that the shift that, that occurred so quickly because of the pandemic, which I think was probably a shift that was already underway and that would have naturally occurred uh, over time, but it's really just been compressed dramatically. So, so that's sort of something that really stands out to me. And then, you know, Kura, going back to the mismatch of supply and demand, I, I think that while IWG Group or Regis, which is kind of the more commonly known brand uh, to, to maybe an end customer, um, while they've been around for more than 30 years, uh, it was really we were coming onto the scene that sort of started this consumerization of the workplace. Um, I think that they stood for something. They were the first office brand that actually stood for something beyond uh, the physicality of the space. And I think that that's, that's sort of like representative of the direction that we are moving in. I think we're moving to a world where um, we're actually going to see more and more freelancers over time and, and let's call them digital nomads or, or independents. But I think more notably, we're also going to see a customer, uh, sorry, a, a employee avatar of sorts that embodies the persona of a freelancer or a gig worker, but that wants the, the sort of job security of working for a company and being able to work on a team alongside a group of others that they interact with on a regular basis. So I, I think that that is going to become big. And if that becomes big, the nature of how real estate's offered has a long way to go um, because I think it's, it needs to look more like a retail consumer purchase uh, than, than it does right now. So if I put up my, took out my crystal ball by like 2050, I wouldn't think that there's nearly as much traditionally leased, i.e. long-term leased office space in the market. It, it could even be sub 50% of the inventory. Um, and I think that there are going to be more and more consumer facing real estate brands, which kind of all fit under the umbrella of space as a service or flexible real estate or co-working. You know, there's there's a lot of definitions of, of, of that space or that category, which kind of shows how early it is because we haven't arrived at a, at a definition that everybody can agree on. Um, well, yeah, that's sort of how I see things. Let, let, let me inter in, interrupt there for a second. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to roll back because you, you get a head of steam going and, and I got to roll you back a little bit here. Uh, um, when you talk about digital nomads, um, let's define that a little bit because because I, I, I don't think it's um, when you, it's a broad bet and brush term. OK, mm -hmm. um, I think historically, people that have looked at digital nomad, that the image they have in their head 
is um, me grabbing a surfboard, uh, 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 ukulele, and a laptop and going to Bali. Okay, uh, and that's not who digital nomads really are these days. Um, uh, I agree with you. Um, and then you referenced um, people that want to be a digital nomad but still want to have a job. We, we have been for years calling those people slow mats. Okay, um, uh, because they do have a job, but maybe they live six months on Prince Edward Island and another six months seasonally in Florida. Or uh, maybe they live in Berlin for three months and then they move down to Lisbon. But they keep their job. They, they're able to produce digitally and keep and sustain their job with their slow man. The biggest group that's working digitally, though, are what we call digital low mats. They're locals. And look at yourself. I'll look at myself. Um, I'm in, working out of my home office today. I'm assuming you're doing the same. Um, <clears throat> I have an office that's about 15 minutes away, a, a, a regular business office. And there's as much likelihood that I'll be meeting someone and doing some work over in uh, Dallas, because I'm in Fort Worth in Dallas this week, uh, working in their office or maybe at a restaurant. So I'm working digitally in multiple locations, but they're all local. And that's the biggest population of digital worker that there is. And it's massive. It's massive. Um, and I like the fact that you mentioned real logic. I'm a big fan of theirs too. And we've very close worked very closely with them on, on a couple of things we're tracking back in 2017 before the pandemic, the fact that, um, uh, the, the remote worker process or things started not as a result of the pandemic, but really started as a result of the battle for talent in the tech industry. Because you might be the brightest tech guy on the planet. You live on Prince Edward. You're not moving to Silicon Valley. They can't offer you enough money, period. So what do they do? They either don't hire you or they say, fine, work on Prince Edward. We don't care. That was going on in, in the tech industry by companies with that talent battle going on in, in 17, 18, and well before the pandemic. And that's where people started getting comfortable with the process. And then the pandemic kicked everybody right through the threshold. And that was the end of it uh, overall. I think your point on uh, vacancy is um, the point that you were making was not just physical space vacancy, like a 10-story building only having five floors occupied, but the utilization factor being about 43 to 48%. Uh, in most internal space, um, the, the companies finally have figured that out. And I'll give you an analogy from the travel industry that's kind of interesting. Um, the, in the travel industry, <clears throat> um, large corporations found out, uh, again, before the pandemic, that um, when they sent people to travel, they used to send them to nice hotels, and they had a fairly humble per diem for expenses. Um, and that is almost completely reversed now. They send them to average three plus four star minus hotels, okay, business hotels rather than nice luxury hotels or nice four to five star business hotels. They send them to three, three plus four hotels, but they give them a bigger per diem because they found that people weren't spending time in the hotel. They just went there to sleep. But they really appreciated the fact that they could go to a nice restaurant, and have a bigger per diem and that sort of thing. So 
that happened in travel before the pandemic also, obviously the pandemic shut travel down, but companies were recognizing they needed to adjust the way people use a different kind of space. And what's no, more analogous to digital nomadism than travel? Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. uh, the place is less important. The amenities or the people you're working with is more important. And I think that's something we've, we've all learned uh, from this experience and, and, and that will carry forward. Yeah, I call that, um, I've, I've said there's no office amenity more valuable than the choice to go there or not. And I, I think that like what, what I feel about autonomy is that it's, it's clearly one of the most valued things that a human being can possess. But I actually think that that's because it allows us to decide where and with whom we belong. And that's so, so it, ironically, actually, there's, you know, Malcolm Gladwell is sort of famous last year for saying that remote work is causing people to be at odds with themselves, their need for autonomy and their desire to connect are at odds. I don't agree because I, what I'm finding with remote work is that my autonomy allows me to decide, as I just said, where and with whom I belong. And so I, I think that there's a huge quality of life and socioeconomic opportunity for allowing remote workers to not only unshackle themselves from location. families and, and this is hugely important but just to close the loop on your on the nomad thing I'm totally in agreement with you actually and and um, I love the term lomad um, what, what I would sort of suggest is that rather than even focusing on where the work is being done what I think is newer than the things that you mentioned is uh, the that the mentality of the average knowledge worker has changed a lot they, they now have possessed that flexibility because of the pandemic. And I think what they want is, is really to behave with a lot of flexibility, be able to come and go from wherever they may please throughout a day. Uh, so in other words, a lot more autonomy. I don't think most people want to be jet setting on a plane all over the place, living out of a backpack, nothing of the no. sort, really. I, I think that most people want to live in a neighborhood that they can afford among people that they enjoy and um, frankly just live their lives. But what I think that is different is that a, a much a, a swell of employees are now sort of making demands that look like that of a, of a gig worker in the sense of really more just the autonomy that that gig worker has to decide where and when they work. I think that that is what um, a, a far greater number of people are now demanding. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Um, the it, it really becomes an, also a generational issue. Um, uh, look back to the 18th, 19th. Nice to hear from a guy with gray hair. Uh, well, you know, it, uh, but I'm immortal, so it really doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, um, the uh, 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 I'll go back to your, your comment about WeWork, too. Um, uh, to me, with 43 years now in the flexible workspace industry alone, 10 years before that, I did nothing but race yachts, so I don't really count. Um, but um, to me, uh, we work nothing but Regis with a paint job. That's all it was. Okay. 
Um, they spent a ton of their investors' money, an outsized portion of their investors' money in self-promotion. Um, and so pretty good parties, by the way. Um, um, but that's, that's really what it is, uh, what they did. And their current value of about $350 million versus their one-time self-professed value of $47 billion is evidence of the mismanagement of the company. With they you, overexpanded. They, they created a myth of who they were. And I'll, an interesting point, um, I, I was in um, the WeWork's largest location at the time in Europe, which was in the city in London. Um, this is in their heyday. Uh, I was there and I said, well, I'm kind of interested to see how this really works. You know, a big top floor, beautiful building, free beer. London, free beer in London. Thursday afternoon, free beer in London. Everybody's always open streets in the pubs at that time. Uh, in the normal at five o'clock, everybody out. No question about it. At WeWork, the free beer bar was dead empty. Mm. People didn't want to stay on campus because there weren't nothing special about it. And that one thing alone was a bellwether that their community was self-proclaimed as opposed to real. Uh, again, maybe they weren't Regis with a paint job. Maybe they were a psychotic real estate company that needed to change their meds. Uh, well, no, uh, I agree with every single word that you just said. Um, I, I think the only thing they deserve some credit for, and it's not even really about giving them credit. It's more just what I think changed is that you could sit at a dinner table with people who weren't in the real estate industry and mention the name WeWork. And all of a sudden, just like people know Coca-Cola or Nike, yep. they knew about WeWork. And I think that that put the office on the map as a consumer product. And I think that we're now on a path to, to figuring out how to get it right. was always struggling for a public identity. Was it a business center, an executive suite, a serviced office? What was it? As co-working came along and became popularized, WeWork absolutely took the lead in making that utilization, that, that industry brand, if you will, better known. Um, now they did it at a massive expense to their investors, but they still, they did accomplish that one job and, and we should all thank them for that, uh, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, we should also thank them for buying a, a surf company and a, you know, health food drink company and those sorts of things because that was important as well. Um, no, I'm, I'm not a fan of their management, as you can tell. Um, but the um, um, I, I, so I, I think you've got an awful lot going there and the change in the way people have run. But where do you think when we talk about vacancy, we're massive actual vacancy now and even a larger percentage of gray vacancy. Uh, and then the utilization is down even further. Every major company I talk to is retrenching. And saying, well, I'm telling them to come back to the office, but I'm only planning on taking 50% of my, on renewing 50% of my space anyway. 
Uh, that's the practical reality of it. Um, and uh, what are you going to do with that excess space? How are you going to repurpose it? Because for cities to stay dynamic, you'll need to repurpose that space, not just large cities like Manhattan or, or Toronto, but for smaller towns that uh, where the flexible workspace industry moved into the suburbs. There's an awful lot of secondary and tertiary market out there that large companies have space in as well. So how do you think that'll be repurposed? Well, I mean, it's going to be really painful, obviously. Um, and it's going to take longer for the disruption to take shape than, say, you know, something that can be disrupted purely by technology. Like this is a, this is an evolution of a physical product, which is a lot clunkier. Um, but, you know, what I, what I think that this remote work revolution will do for downtown urban metros is that it will speed up the, it will accelerate their transition from being um, centers of work to really centers of culture, centers of entertainment, and places to live. Um, in other words, we may have enough office buildings that are fit for purpose to get us many more decades into the future than we had previously thought would be the case. You know, it, it would be really interesting to, to look at a parallel universe where the pandemic never happened. And perhaps we continued to develop our downtowns with more office space than we ultimately needed and eventually the shoe would have dropped. It just would have dropped slower. Um, so I really do think that remote work will will make uh, downtown environments more about living and less about working. Working will, of course, still occur there. But I, I, I love that there's a term in an article that I wrote, I read uh, like last, sometime last year. They, they defined uh, a movement of, of office urbanism, which was really an unshackling of the knowledge worker. To, to being one that that kind of moved more freely within an urban environment, working along the way and being able to tap into productive workspaces. You know, I'm, I'm going to, I guess, use some creative license and say we would have a digital wallet and we'd be able to use our our credits to to work from wherever um, or, or just frankly work, you know, outside of what we would define as an office. So um, I, th I think we're probably will move down that road of remote being more about remote work, causing more living and less working. And we'll probably experience a, an office urbanism revolution downtown. Um, and then, you know, I'd, I'd love to see uh, more neighborhood co-working and 15 minute city stuff and, and people being able to work near their homes. The thing that that I struggle with in that department is I, I feel like it it has to be something that a, a company really buys into facilitating and making sure that it happens. Like, you know, you can't if you just have one office in the suburbs and say to your employees, you know, come to it. I, I don't know that that solves the problem. I think it's probably going to be better to encourage employees to work, um, you know, at co-working spaces near their homes and 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 actually lead that movement. Like companies might be able to help the suburbs transition the inventory by making the decision to empower their employees to, to kind of work from co-working spaces wherever they want. So, you know, in, in, in essence, I think we've got too much office inventory for the amount of foreseeable demand. And some of it will be in really, really dire shape, just like some of the, the retail sector has already experienced. Some of it will get properly repurposed. 
fr from an office perspective and then other stuff is going to have to find a different use. Um, but I mean, the thing that I don't like to see is people from the real estate industry, you know, pulling out the violin for the, the urban downtown core and often, I think, uh, weaponizing the, um, the, the hard times that some retailers have, have faced, which is nothing to joke about. But I find that it's it's manipulative when a lot of people from the real estate sector use those stories, because really what they're trying to do is say, return to 2019 so I can continue to make a living the way that I always have. And that's not good for society. When, when buildings are already 50% vacant and those buildings contribute to 40% of carbon emissions globally, like th these are massive problems that frankly, I care a hell of a lot more about than I do whether a broker makes a million dollars a year. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that um, when you talk about <clears throat> carbon footprint and, and all that sort of thing, the impact of commuting on that from outside of the city into the city, the, Im the impact of importing workers from an uh, ecological point of view is massive. Uh, overall. And I, I think as, as cities are rebuilt, 15-minute city concept um, uh, will continue to evolve uh, overall. And we were actually advising um, uh, uh, business center operators, co-working center operators back in 17, 18, that it was much better to build on a bike path than to build on a metro path. If you're building a new center, you really want to build where people live and can get to conveniently. And it wasn't for um, uh, the issues around the environment. It was for issues of a work-life balance. Because uh, ultimately, nobody minds being in an office. Everybody hates that damn commute. No one wants to get on a train and ride a train for an hour with a bunch of other stinky passengers. And, uh, you know, forget it. No one wants to do that. And people now have not done it for long enough that they're not going back. Mm -hmm. You know, all it takes is one day difference in the office to, and, and the, 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 and the uh, employer recognizing of, or, or moving to a four day week, a four day work week is automatically a 20% vacancy factor in the office marketplace. Yeah. Um, and so all of these trends say, we're going to have to repurpose buildings. But the interesting thing is if we convert, and in some markets we've seen this in Europe, where downtowns have been revitalized by the removal of commercial and the addition of residential. Um, and what that does is it makes a city back, instead of a, a, a city where workers are imported, it makes it not just a 15-minute city, but a 24-hour city because the people that work there live there. And so that's massive in the revitalization and has nothing but positive effects. So I think we're going to, that's a long-term process, of course, and a very um, disruptive economic process to certain investment interests, but uh, it's, it's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, can I add something to that? Cause you're just, you're making me think of something. So um, in downtown Toronto, there's this, there's this sub market called the entertainment district. And historically it was a place with a lot of textile factories and things like that. They were then converted into office buildings and they were those sort of classic brick and beam style buildings, mm -hmm. very attractive to technology companies, et cetera, et cetera. That market pre-pandemic in downtown Toronto was less than 1% vacant. 
And as of today, it's probably I'd have to go back and look. So I I may be wrong to some to some degree, but I believe it's above 20 percent vacant Mm -hmm. when you include subleases that are being marketed as well as direct vacancy that landlords are currently holding themselves. Um, And that doesn't account for, as you already called it, the gray space and stuff like that. So this market has gone from the hottest sub market in the entire world, arguably, because Toronto had the lowest vacancy in the world (laughs) um, to a ghost town from an office perspective, but you know what's not a ghost town? All of the bars, all of the restaurants, and the fact that people do live there. There's so much activity going on in that submarket. The only thing that isn't active is the office. And so it just kind of lends to this theory of people, you know, notably younger people, but increasingly, you know, families are raising children in apartments and things oh, yeah. like that. No, like, it, it makes it makes perfect sense. I mean, when you look at a factory becomes an office, an office becomes a loft, a loft becomes an apartment complex. Um, it's, the building has less value than the dirt that it sits on when there are other amenities nearby that can support a quality of life. Mm-hmm. Okay. I like that. The office, yeah, I like that whole like chronology. I, I might riff on that on a social media post. Yeah, well, it'll be recorded, so you can copy. You can you, no, no, no copyrights here. Um, <laughs> when you when you look at history, um, uh, and uh, I've have a, a long history in this in around this industry, and and then you look at history in general over hundreds, if not thousands, of years, you see a continual repurposing of things and an adjustment in cityscapes and obviously landscapes overall uh, uh, as, as we as we look at at, at officing so uh, and also the fact that people people have always said return to the office and we have not used the term office ourselves for probably at least three decades now we have always used the term officing we believe that it is a verb, an activity, not a place or a noun. So uh, it, officing is an activity. Uh, and uh, that gives it a lot more volatility but, uh, and, and, uh, and flexibility uh, overall in the way that you get your work done. Um, uh, and we also have, have looked at things, and we don't think in terms of square footage. We think in terms of cubic footage. Uh, because the process of officing requires not just the carpet on the floor, but the desks and the people and the services and everything that goes on inside of a workplace. That's what's necessary. And that can be replicated today through technology and through new management styles. And I want to go to culture real quick in, in, in that regard. Um, management styles, because uh, you, you indicated people living should work near home, not uh, from home, uh, as an alternative or partially. And when people talk hybrid today, they usually say uh, three days in the office and two days at the house. The reality is a, a lot of houses aren't suitable for work. Um, they're not big enough. Uh, they, 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 the, the cost of having office space, uh, it's not ergonomic. Uh, it, 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 they, they aren't suitable. So you have to have this third workplace in order to make the hybrid environment truly work. I, I think that's a consideration people should go for. But go, go over to culture for a second, uh, which, hopefully without calling me an old man again. 
So, so far, you you sound young, so it's all okay. Good, good. Go go into culture for a second. In companies, do the corporate cultures create the leaders, or do the leaders create the corporate cultures that end up being the most successful? Which route to success do you think is the most viable or the most important? I mean, to me, I think culture is, is always co-created, but it requires stewards that that live out those values in real time. So um, I, I'll steal a definition of culture from a friend of mine, Stephen Shedletsky, um, who's a, a an incredible guy and, and uh, someone who has worked under Simon Sinek's brand for, for a while now and is now branching off on his own as a corporate consultant and author. Um, he defines uh, corporate culture is the following. It's values multiplied by behavior to the power of influence. So a value is never um, integrity. That's just a word. Doing the right thing is integrity in action. So the value is doing the right thing. And then it's multiplied by the behavior. Either that behavior is done or not done, or it's positive or it's negative, right? And then it, it, then there's the power of influence. So in the corporate context or in a political context, or even within the hierarchy of a family, the leader has the, their whisper is a shout. You know, mm -hmm. the things that they say or do are, are really, they, they're like earthquakes. And so I don't look at culture as being a place at all. Um, and in fact, I think that's one of the biggest problems right now is that many corporate employers believe that their office is the culture. Um, but really, when you think about that definition, you can do the right thing on a Zoom call. You can do the right thing in an office. You can do the right thing in a grocery store, you know, on a, on a call with uh, colleagues in a team offsite. Like the list just goes on. And, and that culture is manifesting itself whether or not people are in that office or they're not. Yeah. So if we want to call culture a place, it's, it's ultimately a myriad of places that cross physical and digital arenas. Uh, it's, it's, it's ubiquitous, if it's anything, uh, in terms of it being a place. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I, I couldn't agree more that culture is based on values and, and, or, or life philosophies, if you will. Um, in our own company, since the mid-80s, we've had two guiding principles. Um, we're kind of simple folk, and so we thought two was enough. Uh, externally, um, our principle is members first. Uh, we think of our customers as members, and so it's members first. And every decision we make on every product, growth, everything we do, the question we ask ourselves at a board meeting is, is this what's best for the members? And if it is, we proceed. If not, we find another way or we say, no, this isn't going to work best for them. So it can't be possibly be best for us. And internally, we just say family first. You know, is this best for not the individual worker, but the entire family of the individual worker? And if, cause you, you, you have to think of who your, your, your teammates are and what they're, they're structured around. And, and so companies can create cultures and we've always been a virtual company in, in all sorts of different, um, variety of shapes and forms uh, throughout uh, our, our, our 
throughout my 50 some years in, in business. And um, uh, it, you can create a culture virtually if your values are consistent and you know you live those values yourself. So that, I think that is critical. Usually what larger companies, particularly public companies, their cultures are around shareholders first. Okay, we have to keep the shareholders happy to keep the share price up in order to get um, more capital in order to grow to beat our competitors. Um, uh, usually it's shareholders first. And, and today, in order to service the shareholder, the stakeholders in the companies, you really have to roll back and say, it has to be customer first, and it has to be the families of your employees first. If you could do those things, you probably don't need to worry about where people are officing. Yeah, I dig it. I dig it. And if more companies thought that way, I think that we would see less of this binary equation that we're dealing with right now, right? Which is an employer is, is saying, come into my office three days a week, stay at home too. Or if you want to fight with me, stay at home maybe more, but we're going to have a fight about that. There's this whole opportunity to bring work to people, not people to work. But only can we only can we do that when we remove this idea that work is a place or work is the office. We if we can get rid of that, a lot more people will be working from offices, <laughs> i.e., third third party spaces of of various shapes and forms, and that's going to be net beneficial to the employee, to the employer, and to the commercial real estate industry. So I always kind of laugh because I, to me, I actually think that remote work is one of the largest opportunities for the commercial real estate sector. And I always give an example from poker, actually, which is that when online poker happened, it didn't stop live poker from happening. In fact, it actually made the live poker environment far, far bigger than it's ever been by um, allowing people to qualify for tournaments on the Internet and then parlaying those dollars into live stops all around the world. The European Poker Tour started. The World Series of Poker expanded greatly. They had tournament stops in Asia and Australia. Like the list just goes on. So I would actually ascertain that the same is possible here, that by unshackling workers from a central office, there could theoretically be more people officing than ever before. But that, yeah, that's only going to happen if we shift the model, right? Like the long-term lease, static, set it and forget it, model is not the model that will facilitate that outcome. That's more likely to facilitate people working from their homes. <laughs> Gosh, they really have appreciated your time today. Uh, you've been very generous and your thoughts are uh, very incisive and, and uh, uh, I know will be tremendously appreciated by our, our audience and our readership. Um, uh, how can people reach you should they choose to do so? What would be the easiest way if someone wanted to reach out to you? Yeah, thank thank you for the conversation. First and foremost, I really enjoyed it too. Um, and then I'm in one place, LinkedIn. I post content daily or sometimes more than once a day. Um, and anyone who wants to connect me with me, that's the where to go. Stuff there myself, and uh, 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 believe that uh, that has an awful lot to do with the future of work. So let's let's go for chapter you, two. Yeah, you should, yeah, you should call me back on that one. We could do thirty or forty minutes just on that. Oh, e easily, easily. I actually lived in a hollow room for two days working with a team in Paris, and I was I was in Irvine, California, 
but I was in Paris. Uh, and I'd walk down the street on a treadmill, but the whole streets moving past. It was very, it was fascinating. It was fun. It was fun. Uh, so awesome. I get it. I get it. Okay. Thank you very much. We'll look up, uh, look forward to um, um, uh, moving things forward uh, and um, the next time. Yep. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Take care, Dave. Bye-bye. If it's impacting the future of work, it's in the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space.